One of the most fascinating things about Athens, I think, and possibly profound, is that it didn't have any type of guiding documentation. There wasn't a constitution, a bill of rights, a declaration of independence. And on the surface, I know that sounds kind of like a piece of trivia that you probably never need to know. But think about what the implications of that are. Today, if someone proposes, you know what, women should no longer be allowed to vote. Well, the insanity of that aside, there's also this thing called the 19th Amendment. The amendments, including the first ten, the Bill of Rights, provide us with a guarantee of certain rights that are beyond the reach of the majority. Now, these can change over time, of course, but to add an amendment or take it away is something that usually takes decades of constant pushing. What if instead we could change these overnight, on a whim? What if instead of guarantees, there were maybe only some lower-level laws and tradition that kept us in the same direction? What if as our values begin to change, the laws could change just as fast to reflect it? And what if we all woke up one day and decided that the most effective foreign policy when we were having trouble with another country was mass execution? In the end, it's our ideals, our values that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8, Values that allowed us to forge a nation. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to episode 17, Fear, Fate, and Power. Your name is Thrax. You are working, it is raining, and it is late. You're in the docks of Athens, in the Piraeus. And of the three bays in the Piraeus, you're working at the largest one. The one that's both military and commercial. It's late November, which is beyond when sailing is really conducted, and the season for naval raids is essentially over. The ship sheds that go around the bay already have a few triremes in them. They've been stripped down of gear for the winter, and there they'll sit until the following spring when raiding begins again. The few triremes that are still visible, that are still in the water, are paying extra close attention to row and sharp order, to keep their timing really tight together because they know that they're the pride of Athens, and when you're in the port of Athens and you're a trireme, all eyes are always on you. You, Thrax, take glimpses at the triremes from time to time, but you still have about an hour of work to do before you can leave the docks. You're Thracian by birth, but you've known Athens your entire life. You are one of many Thracians who has come down and made their life in Athens. You were too young to remember moving here. Your parents brought you here when you were little. Your father was one of many foreigners who began to make a modest name for themselves in Athens. As he worked on the shipyards, he ran one of the storehouses that held goods from Egypt and Sicily and the Black Sea. Athens had welcomed you. You, your family, 
the other Thracians that lived in the Piraeus. You could remember fondly watching the annual horse race. It was a relay race with a torch passed from racer to racer, and it was to honor your god, the Thracian god, Bendis. The Piraeus was a city in itself, and you loved it there. Everything had an order. The squared-off streets and the homes, the two smaller military harbors on the south, the large hybrid port where you're working now. Everything was in its proper place, and everything had felt secure and safe. But then, in very rapid succession, first war came, and then the plague. Both your parents had died and you had survived, but you lost a few fingers off your left hand, including your thumb, which meant that you could not row. Normally this wouldn't be a problem, Athens didn't usually take foreigners to the ships anyway, but lately they were short of manpower. The plague had crippled Athens, and among the many things that it disrupted, the order had changed. Your hours were longer. There weren't as many people to do the work, and so... With the goods and the food still on the ship, you worked. Glancing up again, you can see the island of Salamis in the distance. It's a familiar sight, but something's different. It looks like there's a glow coming off of the islands. It looks like a fire, but that's strange because it's drizzling. How could a fire be burning so brightly? The fire... Looks like it's getting bigger, the glow is getting bigger, and then you suddenly see what looks like a ship coming around the coast. And it's not Athenian. You're squinting into the distance, trying to make out what's going on when you hear shouting break out to your left. Screaming sounds behind you. People start to shout, and when a fire breaks out above you, one of the signals, the alerts of Athens, it suddenly all comes together. The Spartan fleet is attacking Piraeus. This had been a daring plan on the part of the Peloponnesian League. The Spartans had just suffered a defeat to the Athenians at sea, and so no one would have expected that all the allies of Sparta could all show up suddenly on the doorstep of Athens. The initial plan was to attack the Piraeus, but they had trouble coordinating things and so just settled for an attack on Salamis. However, this caught Athens totally by surprise and so when Athens saw Salamis being raided, they freaked out. They thought that the Piraeus itself was about to be attacked, that Athens itself was about to be attacked. They put together a fleet though, after they calmed themselves down and focused on the task at hand, sent out a fleet and as soon as the Peloponnesian fleet was faced with resistance, they turned around and they left. Now, one of the reasons that Sparta was up for trying something so bold and daring, remember the tactics of Sparta are usually very predictable. Go in, raid the land, burn the land, challenge them to a fight, and then leave after a few weeks. This daring plan, though, was part to catch Athens by surprise, but the rumor here is that Athens was weak. The plague had just killed 18,000 people, 4,000 of which were hoplites. And so Athens answered with a bold showing. It had to show itself strong. So it sent out a fleet of 100 ships once again to raid around the Peloponnese. In total, we have 100 ships guarding the area around Athens, places like Euboea, 
and then 100 ships raiding around the Peloponnese, and then another 50 deployed to areas like Potidaea. Athens has 250 ships in the field. And in order to find men for this many ships, they had to tap foreigners. Even the hoplite class, people that they would not usually ask to row a ship. Our friend Thrax, for instance, probably would be rowing a ship right now if it wasn't for the fact that he lost part of his hand, including his thumb, in the plague. Even aside from the personnel challenges, from finding enough people to row all these ships, consider how expensive this is. Between all 250 ships they have in the field, or more accurately, at sea, and then the siege that they're still holding on Potidaea, they're spending about nine talents a day. A day. And a talent, just one talent, is enough to keep a trireme, its crew, its supplies, everything. It's enough to keep a trireme deployed for a full month. Between the loss of population and the hemorrhaging of cash, Athens is hurting. In 429, a play comes out called Oedipus Rex. Stick around at the end, by the way. I have a couple wonderful recommendations for other podcasts that dive into this and just do a brilliant job. That name probably sounds familiar to you. Oedipus. Most people would recognize it from the Oedipus Complex, the psychological theory where everyone wants to kill their father and marry their mother because that is the curse that happened to Oedipus. Not to give away the ending, but at the end it's revealed that Oedipus has in fact killed his father and married his mother. And for most people that's all they know about the play. That's all I knew about the play until I started doing research for this show. This play was written by Sophocles. That is the same Sophocles that helped out during the rebellion of Samos, by the way, if you remember that. If you don't, no worries, we'll get more into him later. But when Sophocles writes this play, he makes it take place in Thebes, a long time ago. This is pretty common for these Athenian plays. They'll usually pick somewhere like Thebes or Argos to stage the story of their play, and then they mirror things that are going on in Athens at the time. For instance, Oedipus Rex opens with a plague. And Oedipus, being a good king, wants to somehow rid his city of this plague. So he goes looking for what to do. Does he need to make a sacrifice to a god? Has somebody committed some crime that's forced this plague upon our city? I won't spoil the play completely, but as I said, at the end, he finds out that the long-ago curse that was laid upon him has come true. He kills his father and marries his mother. But the big takeaway here, what I want you to focus in on, is that Oedipus has done nothing wrong and ends up in misery. Things go from beautiful to catastrophic in the blink of an eye. But this swing from success to failure is exactly how Athens was probably feeling right now. They had been at the height of their power right around 432 when the war started. And then came the plague. And then came the financial crisis. In late summer of 428, they upped the tribute from their allies to help meet the financial crisis, to help sustain all these ships at sea. They introduced a tax in Athens, and it was to a very small class. It was just to some of the aristocrats. But the very idea of a tax was an insult to the Greeks. They saw it as an attack on their personal autonomy. 
While Athens is falling from its previous power, just like always, there are city-states that are part of its alliance that don't really want to be there. That as long as things are good, they'll pay the tribute and they'll not try to cause any trouble for Athens. But right now, Athens is obviously suffering. Even if it has all these ships out, people start to suspect that Athens is not as strong as it once was. And a rebellion right now in the right place might stop this war altogether. One of the city-states that is not only looking to get out from Athens, but also has dreams of empire, in a very miniature sense, of its own, is a city called Mytilene. It's a city on the island of Lesbos, and the dreams of Mytilene are not only to get out from under the Athenian yoke, but to unite all the cities on this island and lead them. In the past, they've actually tried to leave Athens. They've tried to join Sparta in the past, Sparta didn't really want anything to do with them because they were so far away, but now that Athens has been weakened, they petitioned Sparta again and again. And then at the Olympics, they once again have a conversation with the Spartan representatives, and they tell them that you realize by now, the war is not going to be won in Attica, it's not going to be won in the Peloponnese, because that's what Sparta has been doing, they're referencing Sparta would go in every year raid Athens, destroy as many crops as they could, and then leave. But even though this isn't great, it's not really having a terrible impact on Athens. This is what Mytilene is pointing out to them. If this war is going to be won, it's going to be won by defeating the allies of Athens, by cutting off their food supply, by cutting off all the money that's coming into them that lets them continue to fight this war. In other words, Sparta, Stop going and invading their countryside. You need to start trying to trigger rebellions and hit them where it counts. Sparta sees the sense in this. Sparta agrees that they will keep Athens busy where they are. They'll keep up their raids, both on land and at sea. And in turn, Mytilene will have the chance to unite Lesbos, to rebel, and then hopefully bring a lot of the other city-states over to its side, trigger other rebellions. With this assurance, and a Spartan, to go back with them to Mytilene to help them prepare. And so, Mytilene gets on it. They start building walls, they send out for mercenaries and for food, they start expanding their naval fleet, but they're not the only city on Lesbos. There are plenty of cities on Lesbos, and one of them in particular is actually friendly with Athens. So, inevitably, they hear about what Mytilene is doing, and they bring word of this back to Athens... Athens naturally prepares a fleet to go answer this problem at Mytilene. Now, the way this is supposed to work, everybody probably counted on Athens finding out about Mytilene. That's to some point inevitable. But the idea here is that then Sparta will start attacking Athens to the point that Athens can't worry about going to put down Mytilene. It's so busy fighting Sparta. So Sparta gets its fleet together, and they're on the way. But as they're coming towards Athens to keep them busy... Athens once again rallies enough people to man that hundred ships, just like they did at the beginning of the episode, and sends out these hundred ships against the Spartan fleet. Sparta's not expecting this. They're supposed to be even further weakened than they were a few years ago. So Sparta doesn't bother with them. They leave. And the hundred Athenian ships are free to just land wherever they want, more or less, on the Peloponnese. Start raiding. Jump back on their ships and go raid somewhere else. And this demonstration of strength 
and resolve, even though it's not by a bunch of experienced oarsmen. Keep in mind, this Navy isn't a bunch of veterans like it used to be. They're stretched so thin now, so many people died during the plague, that this Navy is a lot of green recruits, people who might never have done this before or have very limited experience. But just the amount of ships Athens is able to put into the water, coupled with their previous victories at sea over Sparta, is enough to make Sparta back down. Sparta decides that Mytilene must have been wrong about how weak Athens was. This is one of the more impressive things about Athens, I think. Like Pericles pointed out in the funeral oration that we covered in last episode, the Athenians don't have an agoge. They don't have a giant, brutal training session to make every person of Athens this mighty superhero military leader like Sparta does. And yet, even in such dire straits, they're able to scrape together enough people to man a hundred ships and force Sparta to back down. That's saying something. Notice, I mean, Athens isn't trying to find Sparta on land. I don't want to sweep Sparta under the rug here. After all, even though the naval attack of Sparta failed, the attack on land was a success really by any means. It was the largest yet, so anything that hadn't been devastated from the year-after-year invasion of Sparta into Attica was burnt or torn down or cut down. But Athens, in these dire straits, is continually displaying this grit and resolve to keep fighting no matter how much the odds are stacked against them. Since the Spartan naval forces backed down, though, Athens is free to focus on Mytilene. It sends a fleet, the force builds a wall around Mytilene and puts it under siege. The Spartan that's in Mytilene, though, is not giving up. He starts giving hoplite equipment out to the lower classes. He says if we don't have enough to fight them on the open field with just the aristocrats, let's equip the lower classes, let's train them, and we'll go out there and we'll face them. The lower classes, at first they're receptive to this, but when they realize how important their position is, They say, okay, fine, we'll fight for the city, but we want more food. We need an equal share of the food if we're going to have an equal responsibility in defending the people. Which would seem like a pretty reasonable demand, but their city is about to surrender unless they do something. The aristocrats don't comply with this. It's not known if they just simply didn't have enough food to give it out to everybody, and they couldn't do this if they wanted to, or if they just refused to share the stockpiles in the same proportion. We're really not sure, but because they couldn't give out enough food, the only option left to Mytilene is unconditional surrender. The Athenian general guarantees that no one will be harmed until Athens itself can make a decision on what to do with them. This isn't going to be an indiscriminate slaughter. As Athens has said in the past, these are the cases that we decide in court. We don't rule through force alone. And the Athenian general in charge here is following through on that promise. They select about a thousand people from Mytilene, as well as the Spartan that was sent to help Mytilene rebel. And they all are taken back to Athens. Now, this is a good chance to catch up on what's happening in Athens in detail, because the Athens that we're dealing with now is dramatically different from the Athens of five years ago when Pericles was in charge and the war was just starting to begin. When Pericles died, there was no natural runner-up. There was Pericles, and then there was a bunch of people either pushing for or pushing against his agenda. And so when he died, 
someone didn't fill his giant shoes. Instead, all these people just kept pushing against each other. And a couple of these people were introduced in this episode. The first is a man named Nicias. Nicias had received an inheritance from his father, and then he took all this money that he got and he reinvested it in renting slaves to the mines, the silver mines of Athens. This is a method of wealth growth that we've talked about before that was not terribly uncommon in Athens. Nicias summed up, though, was a wealthy, conservative, respectful, very pious of the gods man who was really an image of what it was to be an old school good Athenian. We won't really focus on him too much this episode, but for now, it's just worth keeping him in mind. We'll get more into him in the future. But for now, remember him as the pious aristocrat who wants to win the war. He's not interested in a peace deal at this point. Very similar to the other person we'll introduce. The second person that we're going to talk about, who we will spend quite a bit of time with on this episode, is a man named Cleon. The interesting thing about Cleon is that he's not an aristocrat. Something that's really easy to forget here is that even though Athens was free and open and theoretically anybody could stand up and make their case in the assembly and become the first leading man of Athens, that really never happens. Virtually all the people that we've talked about on this podcast, be it Themistocles or Solon or Aristides, have all had wealth or just outright been part of the aristocracy. Cleon is really one of the first of his kind. He's not an aristocrat. He's Athenian, but his father is a tanner. That nasty business we talked about a couple episodes ago. His father has done well in the tannery business, though, and so as Athens has grown in its trade and wealth, a different type of politician has ridden this wave of wealth and success right into the middle of the Knicks at Athens. Cleon is one of these men who has benefited from the financial success of his father and leveraged this into a way to make a presence in the Athenian democracy. Like Nicias, Cleon wants to win the war. He doesn't just want to surrender and find some long-term peace deal. Cleon has been wanting to fight from the beginning. When Pericles proposed that everybody stay behind the walls and just let Sparta run around, do whatever they want, and Athens should just continue to be a sea power, Cleon was one of the people that said, no, we need to go out there and fight them. He takes an aggressive stance. He doesn't want to just win the war. He wants to win the war standing on the ruins of the enemy. Now, pair this aggressive foreign policy of Cleon with the general feeling in Athens right now. Athens had been at the peak of its power just a few years ago, and now they had to get foreigners to row their ships for them. Athens was laboring. The people were feeling this change in the balance of power, and so they were angry at those rebelling against it, and they were afraid of what might happen to Athens in the future. And fear, as we all know, can make you do terrible things. The 1,000 Mytilians were brought to Athens to face the assembly, who were the judge, jury, and executioner for the city. The first person to face the assembly was the Spartan. Now, he offered to try and help lift the siege of Plataea, which was still going on, 
The assembly answered with his immediate execution, without a trial. The Spartan was put to death, and then it was time to determine what to do with Mytilene. Cleon proposes that we should not only kill all 1,000 of the people here, but we should wipe out every adult male in the city. We should sell the women into slavery, and we should destroy their city utterly. It is hard to appreciate the fear and anger that was in Athens right now. Fate had deemed them to be punished through the plague, and they had lost their power, and now cities were rebelling against them. But this was something that they could control. They could control what happened to these rebels, and so when Cleon proposes this, the assembly agrees. Mytilene is to be wiped out. A ship is prepared to carry the news to the Athenian army around Mytilene. And so it is with the burden of the state's sentence. They depart with the news to kill every man in Mytilene. Now remember, there are still a thousand people here from Mytilene, and so the ambassadors, the representatives of these people, begin to beg for a reconsideration. Don't kill all thousand of us and wipe out our city. There are better ways to do this. Something to remember is that there are ten generals, like we've talked about in Athens, and generally speaking, that wasn't supposed to be a pun, but generally speaking, these Athenian generals are fairly moderate. They, they don't have the same aggression as Cleon, who after all is not a general right now, he's just a man in the assembly. And so when these representatives from Mytilene asked for a reconsideration of what just happened, the generals agree, and so the next day, an assembly is held to reconsider the case of Mytilene. What should be the punishment? Should we stay with this enormously heavy punishment that we just declared, or should we say something lighter? Keep in mind, though, this is a day later. The ship left yesterday to deliver the news that all the men have to be killed. It's on its way right now, and so I imagine the representatives of Mytilene were very conscious of every second that ticked by why this debate was going on. The first person to speak is Cleon. Now, I'm only going to read you the first couple lines of his speech, but I want you to pay attention to what he says about their empire. What are they? How should they rule? And how does he address the people of the assembly? I'm sure you can figure out very quickly where he's going with this. Quote, I have often before now been convinced that a democracy is incapable of empire, and never more so than by your present change of mind in the matter of Mytilene. Fears or plots being unknown to you with your daily relations with each other, you feel just the same with regard to your allies, and never reflect that the mistakes into which you may be led by listening to their appeals or by giving way to your own compassions, are full of danger to yourselves, and bring you no thanks for your weakness from your allies, entirely forgetting that your empire is despotism and your subjects disaffected conspirators, whose obedience is ensured not by your suicidal concessions, but by the superiority given you by your own strength and not their loyalty. End quote. 
What he's saying here is whereas Pericles just compared Athens to a tyrant, he says, yes, we might be a tyrant and that's regrettable, but we have no choice but to continue what we're doing right now. Cleon says, you are a tyrant. Own it. This is the way we rule. We're an empire and we rule by strength. He continues on with his speech. He essentially calls the democracy fools. He says, don't believe any argument that's put before you. That might be a reference to the sophism that's going on in the city right now as well. And he points out that Mytilene is not some poor place where we've oppressed. It's a rival power. It's a declared enemy and they should be treated as such. Make an example out of them and wipe them out for your own good. This is the speech of Cleon. These are the points that he makes. We'll have a couple things to say about this in the footnotes, so stick around at the end of the show for that. But for now, we'll mention the other person that speaks. Someone who we really don't know anything about. He comes into the scene, makes a speech, and he leaves. Normally, I wouldn't trouble you with a name like this, but simply because he's giving a speech to try to prevent mass slaughter. We will mention his name. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, it is Diodotus. He starts out his speech by saying that, don't be intimidated by Cleon. We need to think through this rationally and come up with the best decision here. Don't operate in fear or anger, but consider what in the long term is going to be best for Athens. He says that making an example out of Mytilene doesn't make any sense. It's not going to prevent future rebellions because, and notice this here, it's pretty clever. He says when a city rebels... The only reason they would rebel is if they think they're going to succeed. So it doesn't matter how harsh the punishment is, if a city thinks it can succeed, it will still revolt. What we need to do here is to set an example, but the example should be one of reconciliation. If a city rebels, we beat them, and then we allow them to surrender, they still have the ability up front to pay back the damages for their revolt and we show ourselves as gracious. But if we wipe them out, then every rebellion that happens is going to fight to the last man because it knows it has no other option. Mytilene should be an example, but it should be one of reconciliation. And finally, not everybody has revolted. Not everybody's guilty in the city, so why kill every male and take all the women and children? These are the main points of Diodotus. Thucydides tells us that the assembly voted after this, and it was by just a narrow margin that Athens decided to withdraw its punishment of Mytilene. As soon as this is decided, Cleon steps up again and says that, okay, fine, let's execute the 1,000 that we have here then. We have to punish them somehow. And Athens approves this. All 1,000 are killed. Don't miss that. Athens just withdrew its punishment of killing the entire city, but they still kill a thousand people, plus the Spartan, and the Spartan was without a trial. The ambassadors of Mycelini had their redemption, though. They had a chance to save everybody that they knew. Think about this. They're in Athens, and everybody that they know and love is back in their home city, and as they are standing there, there is an Athenian trireme paddling towards their home city, carrying the news 
that all the men are to be killed. Athens issues another ship, another trireme, to go and withdraw the orders of the first. But in order for this to happen, that second trireme has to beat the first one there. And the first one has a day's head start. This is a race with the very highest stakes. The ambassadors of Mytilene offer food and drinks. They provide provisions for the second ship and offer a prize if the second ship can get there in time. Put yourself in the shoes of these ambassadors for just a moment. You were the last hope of everybody you know back home. What wouldn't you give to spur that second ship on? The second ship, though, believed in its mission. It didn't want to have this city wiped out, while the first ship was very hesitant to deliver such dire news. So they were maybe not taking their time, but not rowing with the vigor of the second ship. The second ship, the men that rowed, they took no breaks. They ate while they rowed. They paddled overnight, sleeping in shifts. They gave everything they got. But the first ship still just barely beat them. I'm going to let Thucydides, the father of history, tell you the fate of Mytilene. I'm paraphrasing slightly here. The first ship arrives so little before the second that the general only just had time to read the decree and to prepare to execute the sentence when the second put into port and prevented the massacre. The danger of Mytilene had indeed been great. Thank you for listening to History in the Making. First off, for announcements and show notes, I usually try to trim the fat on the end of these things, keep them pretty short, but I do have quite a few things to share with you today. So if you have to leave, that's fine. Otherwise, stick around for a few footnotes, some recommendations that I have that I think you'll enjoy, and also an idea of what's going on with the show and its future. So first off, footnotes to the show. This is actually a little unorthodox because I'm just going to refer you to the footnotes to next show. We've mentioned Cleon. We've brought him up. If you're familiar with Greek history, you've probably heard of Cleon before. And there are a few things that we need to discuss, but I can't really discuss them without also giving away spoilers. If you can have spoilers for something that happened 2,500 years ago... But just keep in mind that we do need to discuss a few things about Cleon and some of the other people that are going to be introduced in the next episode. Also, I would just like to say that I know we've been leaning pretty heavily on the military side of things with the Peloponnesian War breaking out, so it's a pretty good reason to. But next episode, too, we do have some pretty incredible battles that we simply have to cover. But after that, in the two episodes from now, I guess that would be, we will be getting back into some of the more civil side of things and take a look at what's going on in the streets of Athens again. In a very similar vein, there is a lot going on in Athens right now. I mean, I could not hope to cover everything that's happening in Athens by myself on this podcast. For instance, I don't even mention one of the most formidable naval heroes of Athens. I don't mention how a storm once took a trireme and threw it over the wall of a city. And there are many things that could be dived into here, but one podcast is just not enough to cover everything that is going on in Athens, let alone Greece, Sparta, Corinth, all the other cities that are around. 
So in that vein, I'm going to start recommending other podcasts to you. There is a lot of excellent information and wonderful productions out there that I think you should be listening to if you are interested to learn more about this time frame and will honestly help enrich this show because you'll have a better understanding of what's going on in other parts of the world. Normally, I'm only going to recommend one podcast to you per episode, but in this, the first time, I'm going to recommend two. The first one I'll tell you about is Ancient Greece Declassified by Lantern Jack. This is a great show. It's a series of interviews with very knowledgeable people on the world of ancient Greece. If you want a podcast to give you a variety of sampling from different things in Greece, this is one of the podcasts that I would certainly recommend to you. The interviews include experts not only on theater, but also on philosophy, on war, on the Persian Wars, on the Peloponnesian War, on all the interesting topics that you want to learn about. So check that out. That is, once again, Ancient Greece Declassified by Lantern Jack. The second one I will recommend is Literature and History by Doug Metzger. Sorry, Doug, if I'm getting your last name wrong there. But it is an excellent podcast. It covers not only a lot of the plays in Greece, but literature from all over the ancient world. It is a production I can truly say is extremely unique and a podcast that I really can't recommend highly enough. A word of warning, though, these Greek plays are often very brutal. And simply due to the material that Doug covers, many of the episodes are not appropriate for a younger audience. If you do not fall into the category of a younger audience, though, I would recommend checking out episode 30, where he covers the first in a series of plays on Oedipus that we mentioned in this podcast, and he does a phenomenal job of analysis and production. So, once again, those two podcasts are Ancient Greece Declassified and Literature and History, both of which I'll put a link to in the show notes. And speaking of show notes, keep in mind, you can always find all these new places and cities and characters that we introduce each episode on my website, which is hitmpodcast.com. And now the final thing that we will talk about is a brief state of the podcast, where it's going, and what you can expect now that we're getting later into season one. I expect season one to wrap up in late May or June. That will probably break down into four full-length episodes after this one, and then maybe some bonus episodes and a summary episode at the very end, but we'll see. So that's what you can expect from History in the Making as we come closer to the end of our first season. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you're enjoying share it on Facebook, Twitter, put up those flyers we talked about, whatever you would like to do. I do have a good portion of the next episode done, so this one should actually be on time. And with all that being said, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time.